Good morning, campers. campers. Today's activities include putting on another play, because that's the thing that we're always doing here at at Camp Is It Camp. (laughs) Lunch today will be roast owl. And at the end of the night, we will be absolutely silent because there's a killer amongst us. (laughs) So put on your sunscreen, bug spray, and camp uniform as we dive into Stage Fright, bracket 1987, close brackets. (laughs) Mariska Hargitay, Sarah. Mariska Hargitay, Sam. I am your camp counselor Sam, an ex-pro wrestler in training and current drag wrestling manager who just did their first drag wrestling managing thing two days ago. Hooray for me! Will we be able to see this episode of Super Yes, uh, we will. We put most of our episodes online, so uh, hopefully by the time this recording comes out, it will be on our YouTube channel. Hooray! I'm Camp Counselor Sarah. I am a pumpkin spice addict who has fully relapsed in this beautiful September. And we are here to ask, is it camp? We're diving into popular culture of all kinds to loosely identify what makes something camp. We are not here to be the definitive experts on it, but rather just talk about this often overlooked and frankly queer subgenre. I don't know why I'm having a hard time with the word subgenre. Uh, stage oh. fright. <laughs> okay, how did you find this movie? All right, so I have a pair of friends. Uh, I'm going to give them oh, a big shout Greg. out. I know, I know. Two friends who are uh, in a relationship together because they are a very lovely couple uh, Jen Woodall and Trevor Henderson. And if anybody listening knows the name Trevor Henderson, yes. He is the guy who created Siren Head. Oh, yes. You told me about this. Yes. Uh, So Trevor Henderson, who has very recently become more famous online due to his uh, series of art pieces, which is a photograph that he enhances by drawing in horrible spooky things in the background or in the foreground or very subtly in the shadows. And so he created characters such as Siren Head, and Long Horse and the Sisters of the Ever Sharpening Blade. So go find his work because he also designed a creature for a horror film that came out earlier this year uh, that was then created by Jim Henson's workshop. Damn, that's a dream. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's certainly kind of on the up and up and Jen Woodall as well. She's She's uh, making wave. I, I remember she won. Uh, I think she won an Eisner Award a couple years ago for best new new or upcoming artist. Damn. And she, yeah, she's got her own uh, graphic novel coming out soon that I cannot remember off the top of my head. I'm so sorry, Jen. Uh, it's it's about space punks, just cool, rad feminist space punks this who are is going a power around. Couple. Yeah, yeah. So these two, they're they are an incredibly lovely couple and they do brilliant art. His is all gory, spooky, scary, and hers is very much like fuck the patriarchy. Here's a cool girl with spray paint and a baseball bat. <laughs> she did this she did these uh one of my favorite works that she's done is called Magical Beatdown, which is 
uh, it's like a, a girl's walking home and then she's accosted by some, some horrible street thugs and they're being rude to her and misogynistic. But little do they know that when she you know, goes through her transformation sequence, it's, it's a very uh, Sailor Moon kind of thing. And all of a sudden she gets like a baseball bat covered in barbed wire and she gets this cool eye patch. And then she's got magic powers to just beat up fucking misogynists. Woo! Yeah, but it's also cool and hyper-violent in that she's breaking jaws and shit. Just like we always uh, support punching turfs here, we always support beating up misogynists. Yes, it's... That claim on behalf of the show. I I will... I actively ask that people go out and find both Jen Woodall's work and Trevor Henderson's. If you're in Toronto, you can find a lot of their stuff at The Beguiling. And uh, a lot of other local comic bookstores or independent bookstores, you'll find some of their work there. If not, just order it in because it's dope. So anyway, that's about those two. But uh, <laughs> what, what happens is uh, we'll get together every once in a while, sit down, and they love horror movies. And not in like the, oh, yeah, you know, we've watched Hellraiser and Scream. I mean, like... I've never heard of these films and they'll bring things out and they're like, you have to watch this. And my, my go-to people in terms of is a horror movie worth my time are these two people because they've shown me so many films that I'm just like, this is amazing. How come people don't talk about this? (laughs) That's the thing because horror more than any other genre I feel is so insular. Like, people who are into it are really really into it and it's very rare the movie that breaks out of that genre and becomes widely popular yeah it it very much is a um uh, it's it's not insular they're they're like horror's really good about not being super gatekeepy yeah Um, that's that's maybe the wrong word maybe more like um it's 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 a definitive community within uh, people who like films is if there's no comedy grouping or action grouping, like there is horror movie grouping. Yeah. And with, with something like sci-fi, you get your individual sci-fi fandoms within Mm -hmm. sci-fi, but with horror, for the most part, people who like horror just like horror. Absolutely. They like they'll come. They'll say, you know, I'm not big on this. Like personally, I don't like church torture porn, and I don't like uh, rural horror or what other people will call hillbilly horror. But that's a bit of a derogative term, just because uh, I think torture porn is lazy. Like it, it issues plot in in terms of. Like, really just, oh, we're going to pull this guy's fingers off. Ugh, isn't that gross? <laughs> and uh, with rural horror, it's always, look at these backwards, you know, living out in the woods, incest cannibals. Don't they live in the dirtiest house in the world? Ew. <laughs> and it's like, okay, all right. I, like, I, I get that they're supposed to be horrible, but, you know, Poor people have pride too, right? And they're not going <laughs> to live in a shack filled with goat intestines. I love 
Jenna Maroney in Rural Horror. Mm. Yeah, the the rural the rural juror. <laughs> and its sequel, Urban Fervor. <laughs> so would you say because I think we've already talked about this, I'm not really a horror person. Some of my favorite movies are horror, but I'm very wary because I have I guess to the best way to phrase it is I have a lot of turnoffs when it comes to horror, like a lot. Um, would you say that you're sure. more of a horror fan? I I really love horror. I like like so my my ex and a couple friends and I we get together every like Friday night on Discord and we'll watch horror movies, sci-fi movies, but generally horror movies. I, I like it just because there's such a weird flex to it that happens in horror movies because it it is the genre that is built around pushing boundaries. Right? And you have to be creative in horror. There are so many horror movies that exist that, you know, to be the person who comes with a, up with a completely new idea in horror is incredible. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not even so much like a new idea. So this is, this is actually part of what I was going to get to to talk to today. I was going to talk about uh, genre theory. Okay. I'll go okay. for it. I love genre theory. Are we talking about uh, genre theory in terms of um, like the cycle of genres over time, or are we talking about it in terms of like determining plot? Uh, a, a little bit of both, right? This okay. is going to be a really easy kind of intro to film for, for those listening in the audience that um, may not know about genre th- theory. And I apologize to those listening who are like, oh, I'm super versed in genre theory because you've probably heard all this before. So the idea of genre uh, is that we can categorize things. Humans, humans are unique in this ability to want to categorize everything, that it has to be, this is a sci-fi, this is a horror, this is a comedy, right? We look out at the natural world and we do it, that's a cat, that's a bear, that's an owl, that's a chickadee, right? And it's we part love- of what it makes us smart because we can see patterns it's also part of what makes us really dumb because we say the pattern tells me that the elites are trafficking children and harvesting adrenochrome yeah 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 yeah. and uh you know that the earth is definitely flat because all i ever see is a flat horizon it's like no that's not how that's not how things work um so the same thing happens in genre theory which is that we go into these artistic spheres and we say okay well if i like x how do i find more of x because i don't like y and z i want to exclude y and z from my search parameters right so in this case we're talking about horror films right that there's a certain quality about horror films that we go to that we look for and then within horror films there are subgenres and under those subgenres, there are more subgenres. It's it's messy and it's wild, and people like to think that of these things as rigid boxes, and it's not. It's it's an ever evolving tree. It's a it's a uh, to put it in in very 
Pocahontas terms of, you know, you, you, you may put your foot in this river and it's static. No, it's not static. It's constantly flowing and it's ever moving towards something new and amazing, right? Exactly. And, and way over there is the Western branch and it is dying no matter how much artsy filmmakers try to revive it. I, I think we need to get away from an artsy filmmaker and get somebody with some real chutzpah to go into it. You know, like uh, you want your Taika Waititi, you want your James Gunn, you want your Edgar Wright to go into the Western genre. Imagine their movies. (laughs) The problem is now you've said the words Edgar Wright Western into the ethos and odds are I'm probably never going to get that and now I'm cursed. <laughs> well, it's like the Edgar Wright Ant Man. Imagine what the Edgar Wright oh. Ant Man would have been. Uh, oh no! Uh, but we we okay. still love Edgar Wright and his movies, regardless. Every Edgar Wright movie, yes. Even mm-hmm. even uh, the last one in the Cornetto trilogy. Hmm. So, uh, when we get to horror, we have a very loose definition of what the genre of horror is right it's meant to evoke fear of course but the problem with fear is it's the same thing with comedy it doesn't work for everyone not everybody looks at certain films and says that's definitely a horror that's definitely a horror that's uh it's like some people look at silence of the lambs and say that's a thriller that's not a horror because it doesn't This is the class thing with horror, though. Oh, it's not a horror movie. It's a suspense movie. It's a thriller movie. Yeah, and this is also part of the the weird uh, Hollywood, I'm going to say, like the the Oscar system, the award system, where the award system despises giving money to horror films, despises giving awards and accolades. Look at the movie Us. Look at the movie Hereditary. Right, uh, Lupita Ngoyo, she deserved at least recognition for how well she did in Us. Where was I that? Fucking love, nowhere. I love Us. It's one of my, I don't know, top ten movies of the last decade or something like that. And that's what I mean when I terms of horror. Like that movie's not a thriller or suspense. That movie's a straight up horror movie, and I oh, absolutely. love it. I love it. It, so it's it's often been like the ugly stepchild of film genres. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The only thing uglier than it is uh, is generally sci-fi. So you'll really? see, yeah, yeah, you'll you'll often see. Uh, I mean, dramas are always top of top of the shelf for yeah. for awards and recognition. Then come your dramedies, then come your comedies. And as you get lower down the list, like sci-fi will get technical recognition. Mm -hmm. How often do Marvel films get nominated for that special effects and stuff? Mm -hmm. But in terms of like acting, plot, music, editing, directing, it's very rare that sci-fi gets it, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, only slightly less rare that horror gets it. And the reason I say that is because now this new term has started cropping up in the horror genre called elevated horror. So and, is that like your us, your get out, your 
um, I don't know, do yeah. paranormal activity. No, not paranormal activity. So, so what's been happening is uh, a lot of these critics have been banding around the word elevated horror. And I'll say it like that because it really <laughs> is. Like, you, you can't see the masturbation hand gesture that I'm doing <laughs> I say that because it's, it's this way for, for certain critics to get themselves out of uh, having to deal with other horror films right? It's when they look at it and they go, oh, this film now has some prestige to it, right? It, the, the director is somebody of note and they've gotten, you know, good actors and there's a pedigree behind this film that other horror films just don't have, which is it's why you can hear people. Film. Yes. Like A24 a is considered like i like a24 films i think they're great i i think what they're doing is some incredible stuff but they're and it's not them they're the ones that a lot of these critics and average audiences go to to be like oh it's an elevated horror film oh it's it's not for the common intellectuals will watch this horror film because of this that and the other because it's not here's gratuitous gore, here's a ton of blood, here's all these bodies, here's all this sex, right? It's, it's oh, it's a think piece. It makes you, like, hereditary. It's a film about grief. And it's, yes, hereditary is a film about grief. We, we all get that. You don't have to be a real learned thinker to understand that it's a film about grief. But for some reason, a lot of these critics are going in and saying, this is worthy of your time and attention. This is not worthy of your time and attention. And it's starting to be, I mean, it's, it's this weird recent trend of extreme tribalism that's coming through where we're just applying tribalism to everything of this is worth your time. This is not worth your time. Oh, this movie talks about gay rights, not worth your time. Oh, this one talks ever so subtly about gay rights. It's a metaphor for it. Ah, well, just because of that, it is worth my time and stuff like that. So, yeah. People yeah, talking we're, like, we're... like Jordan Peele and Ari Aster invented the concept of having a theme in your horror movie. Exactly, right? And the fact that, like the new Candyman, people keep on saying, Oh, it's Jordan Peele's Candyman. It's not Jordan Peele's Candyman. It's Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Just because you've got the producer who's made two great horror films. I, I'm not going to deny that he made two great horror films. But just because he's producing it doesn't make it his film. It's more her film than anything else. And, and if you want to talk about uh, themes, the original Candyman is all about... Um, uh, I don't know if I want to call it urban decay, but willful, um, willfully allowing cities to fall apart due to a lack of money um, and white flight. Like, it's not like it's inventing this story. No, and I mean, on, on top of it, like can, Candyman's a whole thing that we could get into, but it's not terribly camp, so we probably won't. Mm-hmm. But uh, listen to another great podcast, uh, Horror Queers. They recently did two episodes on both of the Candymans and talked about this. Uh, they're, they're great. Um, 
I actually went to school and was taught by uh, one of the hosts, uh, Joe Lipset. And so it's, it's kind of funny <laughs> in that <laughs> listening to him, I'm just like, yes, this is, this is all the stuff that I was taught by you in school. This is great. <laughs> so plugging that other podcast. Anyway, back, back, to, back to film theory. So one of the things that we look for with genre theory is a sharing of common traits. All right. And in horror, what we, what we specifically look for is this, this great term that I've held on to since year one of film studies, which is the return of the repressed. Bum, bum, bum. Uh, yes. Okay. All right. That's, that's setting off your synapses now. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember this. Yes. So the return of the repressed is basically horror digs into the things that society has shunned. Okay. That, that they've mm -hmm. pushed to, to the margins, to the extremes of society in order to further the, the power of straight white uh, cisgendered men. Right. That that's mm -hmm. like, you look at comedies, action films, you know, all those things for most of cinema history, guess who it's about? Straight, white, middle-aged, well-to-do, cisgendered men. And what the horror does—the worst. Mm -hmm, worst. And what horror does is it goes in and says, "What if we were to threaten you with something that's not any of those?" There's a reason there's no such thing as the final man. Yeah, it's very rare to have a final boy, a final man, and it's it's much more common to have, you know, the, the final girl mm -hmm. or the final woman in some cases. Thank you, Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> so uh and so what happens in, in horror movies is that they find these marginalized ideals, whether it is uh, a minority in terms of race, whether it's um, uh, female sexuality, uh, non-heteronormative uh, gender ideals or sexual ideals, uh, things in terms of money, right? Uh, generally, the poorer classes, which is why we have rural horror, right? Or things like Children of the Corn, which is all, oh no, children farmers, ah, right? <laughs> So just as an example, I'm thinking like ginger snaps for uh, female power. And uh, that's also kind of body horror in terms of puberty as well. Um, yeah. For terms of gender, is it Sleepaway Camp or Sleepaway Camp 2? Uh, Sleepaway Camp is, is yeah. the one um, <laughs> because it, it has that famous, famous uh, sort of it's not a twist ending, it's a shock ending. It's so left field, what? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's brilliant. Um, it's very problematic. And really it is a, is a film that, uh, again, we as two cisgendered people cannot talk properly about it, but it has been talked about previously on other you know, queer horror film podcasts. So what does this have to do with stage fright? What are we looking at? Well, stage fright is part of that subgenre of the horror genre, which is the slasher film. And I love slasher films. There's, there's something that just tickles my entertainment bone. Of, <laughs> uh, here's a group of people. Here's a killer. 
the killer is picking off this group of people one by one by one. My favorite version of that is the whodunit slasher, which Mm. is maybe one of these people actually is the killer, and let's find out who it is. But in the case of an Agatha Christie sort of trope, right? Absolutely. I I love a good mystery on top of the killings. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the killings, when done right, is just a fun, fun time, such as in the case (laughs) of stage fright. So going back to film genre theory, we are in the slasher subgenre. So slashers themselves have a certain set of parameters that creates this this genre box, right? One of them is generally you've got a fairly large body count. You have a killer whose identity may or may not be known, right? You have uh, generally nubile young people, <laughs> mostly women, mm-hmm. right? And, and Gen- sometimes it's teens, sometimes it's young young people. There is sex, there are drugs, and there's usually an iconic thing about the killer, whether it's a mask or a weapon. Uh, so like in uh, Slumber Party Massacre 2, the, we- uh, the killer is the driller killer, and his weapon is a drill mounted on a guitar. It's Wait, also... How? Um, it's a horror comedy musical. <laughs> it's a whole thing. Slumber Party Massacre 2 is, is kind of great in how bonkers it is. Uh, <laughs> there's uh, Jason Voorhees. He's got the, the creepy mask. Mm. He's got a machete. Uh, Freddy Krueger. He's all burned up. He's got the iconic clothes. He's got the glove with all the knives on it, Right. The, the killer always has this sort of signature about them so that if you were to see them just in like a silhouette, you could probably pick out, oh, that's Chucky. Oh, that's Pinhead. Oh, that's uh, so on and so forth. Although arguably, again, Pinhead's not the, the bad guy of the Hellraiser movies, even though later they tried to make him the bad guy. It's Julia who's the bad guy. She's the real monster. It's just that, like how Jigsaw is not really a bad guy because he doesn't actually murder anyone himself. No, this is legitimately, Julia is the monster. She murders a ton of people and the Cenobites are just there to collect one soul and she's getting in the way of it. So, right. yeah. And so here, here we get to this idea of the cycle of genres. The slasher genre, a lot of people will attribute the start of it to Peeping Tom, which was a film that came out very shortly after Psycho and was regarded as a ripoff of Psycho. It's great. Go see it. Is it uh, because an English it, movie? It is an English movie. It's about oh, a guy who murders women using his camera while he films them. Creepy. Yes, Uh, but the real cementing of certain themes of the genre came in with Halloween. John Carpenter, Jamie Lee Curtis, which was, here's a bunch of teenagers. Here's a masked killer. Here is a date. Dates become really important to the genre, uh, to the uh, slasher genre for a while. Because after Halloween does really well, 
a bunch of studios jump on going like, we need a new date for a cool killer. <laughs> so that's why you get prom night, uh, April Fool's Day, New Year's Evil, um, Silent Friday Night, Deadly Night, Friday the 13th, right? It's like you, you can really find pretty much any fairly major holiday and there's a slasher involved around it somehow mm-hmm. so yeah halloween's where it cements the ideals and what happens in the cycle part of genre theory is that over the course of a 10 15 year cycle what you get at the beginning of it is this cementing of the ideals the things that will define what happens for the rest of it. Then you get movies coming out after it that reiterate that. They say, okay, we're playing along. These are the rules. So there's got to be a killer. There's got to be teens. There's got to be a location, uh, iconic thing. Dead, 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 dead. Look, there's a final girl. She gets one up. Maybe a sequel. Right? It always ends on a sort of question mark. I Did I kill the killer? Dun, dun, dun. The kind end question mark. The end question mark. Stage fright comes in close to the end of the first cycle of slasher films. And when you get to the end, and you and this is how you know that the end is coming, is that films will start saying, Cool, we've established rules, we've reiterated those rules. Now let's play with them. What can we flex? What can we, what boundaries within this genre we've constructed can we start pushing on to see what works and what doesn't? And can we get new reactions? And I really feel that Stage Fright is a really good example of a late stage slasher film of the first genre. And I chose Stage Fright to do as opposed to Scream because one, Mm. every podcast has done Scream (laughs) at some point. You can listen to any number of other horror-oriented podcasts and you will find a Scream episode. And I'm not saying Scream isn't great because Scream is fucking amazing. But... (laughs) I also, I wanted to do something less heard of. I wanted to do stage fright because frankly, more people need to see stage fright. It's, it's a blast. It's so much fun. So let me get into the little details of stage fright before we get into the plot. Were okay. you about to ask something? Uh, no, I was just about to say uh, thank you because I, I watched Scream and Scream 2 sometimes during quarantine for the first time and I enjoyed them but not as much as this I have to say I think this is the best movie TV whatever that we have watched from this show so far I love this movie this I I really wanted to talk to you because uh, uh, <laughs> we we watched this together in person when we saw it yeah um and I really wanted to talk to you about this film <laughs> after we'd seen it. But I decided, no, I'm going to shut the fuck up, let her stew on it, and don't try to change her opinion until we get to this, uh, this episode that we're recording today. And here we are. And yes. uh, you loved it. Yes, I will say, too, something that you did notice is I was trying very hard to stay awake during it. I was a sleepy little girl. Um, but this is a great movie to not 
trying to fall asleep to um, because it feels very dreamlike. I have rewatched it since. So I, I have seen the entire thing sober, as it were. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I absolutely love this. And I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you did because, like you said, you're not a big horror person. And I was like, oh, is this, is this going to be the right kind of thing that I like and I can share with Sarah that she's going to like too? Or is she going to come out of it being like, Sam, it was, it was horrible and I didn't like any of it. <laughs> so uh, take us into, uh, into the making of the movie. All right. So uh, this is actually an Italian film. It was originally known by the title of Deliria and came out in 1987. Now, the Italians are somehow, <laughs> they're, it's, it's a really weird thing for horror movies. When you see an Italian horror movie, it's very divisive. Most people that I watch any Italian horror with either hate it outright because they get weird. We're talking Giallo, Fulci, uh, 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 Dario Argento films. Those, those being the kind of staples of Italian horror. And like I watched Phenomenon with my ex. I was just like, this movie's so great. It's got Jennifer Con Con uh, Connolly. It's got, um, uh, she can control bugs. That's, that's her weird superpower. She has the ability, but she's not the killer. Somebody's killing all of these girls at a dance academy in the German woods. It's not Suspiria, but it's got a I lot of plot points. <laughs> well, it's directed by the same guy who made Suspiria, so it's his own fault, okay? And then all of a sudden, the last 15 minutes of the movie, you're like, what? Sorry, there's an inbred child? There's there's a monkey there's drowning uh huh it, it's so much stuff is happening and it can either get you or lose you and the music as well a lot of people get turned off by the music because it'll be bands like goblin or very synth heavy scores and that's the i love this score it's very synthy I absolutely loved it. Oh, it's Cynthia in the right way because on top of it, the film explains why it's the score sounds the way it does. And I really love that meta narrative that the film does of this is why we're doing this. This is why things sound this way. This is why the killer looks this way. Mm -hmm. it, the, the internal logic of stage fright is so delightful uh, so, yeah, uh, it's an uh, Italian film directed by Michael Salvi. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing anybody's name. Starring Barbara Cupisti, David Brandon, and Giovanni Lombardo Radice. Uh, the fun thing is, when you look at these guys on Wikipedia, a lot of them have, like, much more English-sounding names that they go by. Like, Giovanni Lombardo Radice, or Radice, like, also known as John Morgan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They they definitely have like their American names. Yeah. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, not a whole lot is super known about how well this movie did. Uh, I, I have to think that it didn't do too well because most people haven't really heard about it, right? Mm-hmm. 
Uh, it was released in in several different names, such as uh, Bloody Bird, Aquarius, uh, Deliria, or Stage Fright. And yeah, it's it, it it's very um, there's a Jalo quality to it. I think later on we'll we'll get to a Jalo episode if I want to find something really camp for that. But the guy who directed it. Uh, was a protege of Dario Argento. So it has a, a very clear pedigree of, you know, that this Ar- Argento is undeniably one of those masters of horror that people talk about. And mm-hmm. for him to pass this project on to his protege, you can feel his fingers in it, but at no point does it have. Like there's there's no um ooh, this isn't like the, the Toby Hooper Steven Spielberg thing of who's the real artist of this? Yes, 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 yes. No, it's very clearly a different director. Thank you for putting into words what my brain was having a hard time <laughs> getting out. Uh because when you see an Argento film, you know it's an Argento film. And this one, while it's close, while it has a lot of fun things going for it. It's not an Argento film, but that's, I think, to this film's credit, because it stands so firmly by itself. Uh, And in terms of critical response, it got kind of middling uh, response. I think now, as with most cult films, people have gone back and looked at it and gone, this is a genius film. This does things that we weren't looking at. But unfortunately, again, with horror and especially with slashers, critics at the time viewed most horror and slasher films as garbage, 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 garbage. I don't give it time. Like Roger Ebert was famous, absolutely famous for just giving most slasher films and most horror films like one out of five stars because he, he would walk into them straight off the bat going, I hate this already. The film hasn't started, but I know what's going to happen. Bunch of teens are going to die. The end. <laughs> yes. And I think it's weird, too, because we, that's very much the public perception of horror, but we very much accept this in other genres without the blink of an eye. Like, I love, I love romance, and you want to talk about a genre that literally fights break out amongst authors if they say you know you take the formula and you change it and therefore it's no longer romance like people argue if it doesn't have a happily ever after can you really call it a romance that sort of thing um and we see the same thing in action movies like are you going to be really shocked that the good guy survives at the end of an action movie but that doesn't get the same sort of criticism as horror films do Exactly. And, and this is why horror and sci-fi end up being the ugly stepchildren, right? There's so few movies that make it out into the wider cultural scene. Like, you can look at The Exorcist, and The Exorcist was highly praised for what it did. Right? The, the Changeling, uh, Silence of the Lambs, Alien, all it's these movies... Movie really broke out and became not just part of the cultural uh, zeitgeist, but in terms of the critical zeitgeist, 
where all of a sudden people would be like, ah, movies like that, those ones are great. And it's why, like, after you get that one horror movie that pokes out and becomes a critical darling, that's when you get a glut of movies trying to latch back on to that feeling, right? The, um, the erotic thriller uh, uh, explosion of the 90s, all coming from Basic Instinct and, and um, uh, what's the one? The other one. With, <laughs> yes, the other one with Glenn Close. Like, the Glenn Close, uh, yeah, Fatal this, Attraction. This is, this is Michael Douglas's subgenre. Like he owns it the is. genre. He is. I mean, that that should basically be one of the the traits of the erotic thriller subgenre. <laughs> Does it Michael, Michael Douglas? <laughs> we sh- even if we can just get Michael Douglas in for like a cameo in the background as bystander number three, <laughs> then it's officially an, ero- an erotic thriller. Ant Man and the Wasp is technically an erotic thriller. <laughs> 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 I'm sorry. I'm does sorry. Have- to everyone who Yes, it does. All right, we are reclassifying the MCU films according <laughs> to who's in them. Uh, I think he's, yeah, he's technically in Endgame for like one shot of the back of his head. Uh, that's an erotic thriller now. Endgame, erotic thriller. <laughs> Great, love it. So yes. yeah, that's that's what I've got to say about jo- uh, genre theory and and kind of the the cycles, right? I, I mean, other than I think we're due to enter into a third slasher cycle sometime soon. Well, we've gone uh, past I, uh, the comedy and remix, so we should be into the rebirth right now, right? Yeah, so it's it started happening recently with uh, Happy Death Day, Happy Death Day to You, and uh, Freaky. And while while they are comedies and sci-fi, they are also slashers. They're all great. Um, a lot of fun. Happy Death Day to you skews a little further away from these, the slasher horror and instead decides to delve more into the sci-fi comedy aspects of it. But it's still got horror elements. The characters do die still. Freaky was that- really well received. I loved Freaky. I mean, it, it is my favorite Vince Vaughn performance to date. If you <laughs> want to see Vince, I hear it, he's the best thing about it. If you want to see Vince Vaughn play a sixteen-year-old girl convincingly well and actually have like emotion and pathos behind him, uh, yeah, go see Freaky. <laughs> so you're saying that's the that's the new form that we're looking at right now. Yeah, I think it's going to be like it it may have been the start or it may have been just a pit stop on the way to the next genre of slasher films. But uh, I think this idea of taking the slasher formula and then applying a very well-known previously established formula from another genre to it, that may be the direction that we're going to start going in. Because Happy Death Day and Happy Death Day to You was Groundhog Day plus a slasher, and then Sliders plus a slasher. Freaky is Freaky Friday plus a slasher. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Um, so I guess we can get into the plot. Before we really get into the plot, I do want to talk about music that you brought up earlier, because this is sort of ongoing throughout. Um, 
the music in this is so good and I feel like there's it's at times really confusing about whether it's diegetic or non-diegetic mm-hmm. um there's particularly a scene where she's trying to find the keys and it kind of feels like that thing when you're like sneaking around at night when nobody's awake and everything feels so much louder your breathing feels louder every step feels louder because she's she's going through the drawers of this desk and the score we we don't get much in terms of actual foley but the score is sort of this um it's kind of like peter and the wolf you know where each piece is sort of telling you the action Mm -hmm. and ramping up that tension because it's you're not actually hearing the drawer open like but there's this associated music and i just oh i think it's so good uh so in, in case anybody's wondering, why are we talking about the score so much for this movie? Um, it, it, it's part of the plot, so we might as well mm-hmm. yeah, get, get to the plot with it. But okay. um, yeah. Well, I'll, I'll give a brief overview. It, um, it starts out with this like really stylized murder of uh, a sex worker by this man in a giant owl costume, and then we cut and we find out, no, it's actually just actors rehearsing a musical. The whole movie basically takes place within this soundstage with um, some very shoddy fire code violations, I should say. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> everybody's locked inside the building. You have to get a key to be able to get out, um, which, you know, I'm just thinking, like, I have heard about so many nightclub disasters like this um but yeah the music playing throughout is quite often a sort of score to the play within the movie yeah so it's it's really fun in that the whole score that we're hearing as the audience is not some made-up thing of a i mean it's always a made-up thing but it's diegetic in that the score that we hear, all of the characters are hearing too. And it just so happens that the score for the play <laughs> they're producing, rehearsing, is just syncing up really well to the action that they're performing uh, as characters. So, you know, as they're sneaking around the building, the music is more sneaky sounding, right? When mm-hmm the tension needs to ramp up the music starts to ramp up and it's it's so such a genius move of let's just leave the score to this this bizarre musical that we've created going in the background and that explains why there's music it feels so operatic to me the entire way through in terms of you can't really divorce the music from the story in this movie in a way that I feel like a lot of I don't know if it's because they say it's a good score if you walk away not remembering anything of it right because it's just it's the emotions that it makes you feel but for me the visual and the music in this are so intermingled in such a powerful way I just it's why I think this movie is so good yeah, it's it truly is just like these this galaxy-brained move of, <laughs> of like the, it's it's the meta 
film. It's the meta theater. And here you were. You were worried that this, this was just going to be another Phantom of the Opera that we've chosen. And instead <laughs> you got you got stage fright instead. And it's it's just so delightful. Oh, yes. I might say, when I say this is the best thing that we've watched, the only real contender for this is Phantom of the Paradise, because that is so good. Anyway, um, so they are all rehearsing this play, and one of the actors, like the lead actress, right, she sprains her ankle, and she mm -hmm. has to go to the hospital. Um, now, it, it's important to note that the plot of the film, the, the stage production is called The Night Owl, and the killer in it is wearing this enormous <laughs> owl. Uh, not, a, not a mask, it's a full-on cowl. It comes down to his shoulders, it looks like an owl head, and when you first see it on a, on a dancer, because what they're performing, it's not just a theater production, it's a fucking musical involving prostitutes and juicy murders. And, <laughs> and they're all, he, he, after he kills the prostitute, the, the sex worker in the, alley, uh, in the alley, and people go, oh, a murder, oh no. And you're like, oh, ooh, this is, this is exciting. He leaps out of the shadows and front pulls <laughs> up into a pose and the rest of the cast, because you don't know it's a stage production, they all pose with him and you go, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> I thought yeah. we were on a street. I was taking notes at this point, and Sam was like, no, you have to watch this part. Yeah, because they get up, and they're pirouetting, and they're dancing with each other, you know, their bodies leaning into each other. It's all frenetic energy of, there's the killer, there's the killer, there's the killer, I'm the killer! <laughs> and you're just going, wait, what did I walk into with this film? And then it pulls out and you go, oh, it's a stage production. Great. Love yeah. it. <laughs> um, so Alicia sprains her ankle. She's the lead actress. She's the sex worker who gets murdered. Um, as, you know, <laughs> as any actress must ever play, a sex worker who gets murdered. It's maiden mother crone sex worker who gets murdered um <laughs> <laughs> the, the quadumbrate yes exactly the four in one and the one in four um so she wants to go to the hospital to get her ankle looked at because she sprained it but she doesn't want number one she has to get the key to get out and number two they're working and she knows the director won't let her leave so she uh the costume lady says, I'll drive you. They find Willie, who is the <laughs> only decent person in this entire movie. Willie's and, like and um, the janitor? Not, or... he, I think he's a building maintenance guy. But what I love about this scene is they're, they're, they're doing this, this whole thing in a theater. They're practicing because the show opens in one week. So they're not ready yet. And, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and then on top of it, she looks through the yellow pages to find where the nearest hospital is. <laughs> and she looks up, she, I guess she must have looked up hospital and not properly looked at the place that she was going to. <laughs> <laughs> because they end Look up driving. Look at the porter storm. 
<laughs> it really is any port in a storm. The place they end up driving to is the local uh, institute for the criminally insane. Arkham Asylum itself. <laughs> but with far less security. <laughs> less security than Arkham is saying something. Um, yes, so they go there and the nurse is kind of a bitch and is like, you know, you're not supposed to be here. Um, but then a doctor notices that a very pretty lady is there and he says that he'll take care of her, which he does. Uh, he seems to take care of her sprained ankle by stroking her upper thigh. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, who are we to to look at the medicine of other countries such as Italy? Maybe their tantric thigh stroking technique does wonders for ankles, okay? Yeah, in 2021, I don't know about you, but I support healthcare workers, okay? They're on the front lines. <laughs> How dare we, as a Western society, look at a slightly less Western society <laughs> and judge its medical practices of thigh stroking? Uh, so while they're there, it just so happens that there's another patient there. <laughs> oh my God. This is one of those cases where, sure, just get us to the start of the murders. <laughs> You're really embarrassing us both that we have to go through this setup. This part of the movie is inviting us up for a cup of coffee, you know? Yeah, it's so that this guy gets wheeled in, strapped to a gurney, and he he has literally just committed a bunch of murders. And... Yes, and but he's also a failed actor. Ooh. And his name is Irving Wallace, and I can only think Irving like in Cell Block Tango. Irving. Yes, Irving. <laughs> so he's in this cell, and Alicia just sort of stands there, grasping onto the bars of the cell, staring in at him, very rudely, I might say. <laughs> I, I mean... How how is she allowed to just wander through the halls of like y yes it is a, a mental hospital for the criminally insane but people who just come in off the street shouldn't be able to walk right by the cell with the very recent murderer staying in it a, a cell which only has a couple of iron bars separating her from the murderer. Oh, yes, absolutely. I just want to say a quick note here. Um, and I don't think you actually know this. Um, I have been in a mental hospital, not as a patient myself. Um, okay. Um, but I have been in a hospital. I, uh, I'm not going to say who this person is because I'm nope. not sure how comfortable oh. they'd be. Um, but a relative of mine did an inpatient, a couple inpatient stints at a hospital for mental health. Um, and I went to visit them. And you know what? Like, <laughs> the hospitals are so much bo more boring than they are in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was, was this relative Irving Wallace, famed actor and murderer? Listen, they never proved a damn thing. Um, but yeah, I always, I always kind of laugh because it's like, 
I don't know. I guess it's just one of those things where for me, it's just part of my normal life. But for other people, yeah, I guess other people don't have a ton of experience with somebody going through the mental health system. I'm like, oh, yeah, mental health system is full of crazy murderers. Definitely. It's absolutely not a boring place where people <laughs> claim that they get served shepherd's pie every day. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's surprising how few mur- like like rampage serial killing <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna make a pile of ears in my basement murderers there are in the world yes and i'd like to say too mentally ill people are far more likely to be the victims of violent crime than they are to commit violent crime absolutely now with that aside let's get back to the murders Let's get back to the juicy murders. I've got to do a. I've got to find a lot of juicy murders drop for you. <laughs> yes. Oh, that is a good drop. Uh, so they go back to the soundstage after she's gotten her thigh caressed, and of course, Irving Wallace sneaks into the back seat. Why nobody ever checks the back seat? God also, only but- knows. But they didn't lock their car when they got to this this hospital period. Um, so Irving Wallace has somehow murdered an orderly, mm-hmm. switched places with him. Oh yeah, yeah. The the orderly has his face away from the the camera as the doctor walks by and goes, "Yes, that's definitely Irving Wallace <laughs> in that room," and it's then walks off crime. and then. And then he rolls over and he's got a big syringe sticking out of his neck. Uh, nobody could have noticed that place where there was only two people working, one extra person walking the halls. <laughs> so they, they get back to the sound stage. Uh, they have not checked the back seat and they both go in uh, just as it's about to start raining. Yes, and Alicia is promptly uh, fired for leaving by the director, who I might say is a 10 out of 10 smoke show. God damn, this guy was distracting. You were distracted by the director? Oh my god, yes. He's a very tall Irishman. Was it his strong jaw? Was it his uh, incessant smoking? Was it his yelling ability? (laughs) Listen, uh, I separate the art from the artist. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> so the the director is an absolute tyrant oh, of a yes. director. He he and is a terrible director considering they haven't even finished the <laughs> and it's a week from the debut. It's not not only is it a week, but uh, it in in a short while he decides to actively change the entire play. And open it half a week earlier. <laughs> yes, because um, Betty, the costume woman, goes back out to the, her car because she thinks she's uh, forgotten something. The thing she's forgotten her life. The uh, Irving Wallace has snuck out of the, uh, the the car boot, which has been left open. She goes, "Huh, that's weird. Car boot's open. Don't remember that." closes it, turns around, and subsequently gets a pickaxe to her mouth. 
the Italian countryside seems terrifying if there's just pickaxes lying around. Like where did he find a out here? <laughs> where did he find a pickaxe? Like there's there's there there's zero like setup to why there's a pickaxe. Uh, all the rest of the weapons used in the in the film absolutely make sense. They show you him finding them, but this pickaxe. I, I guess manifests from <laughs> sheer desire to murder someone in a cool way. Yeah, he put it out there like the secret. Yeah, <laughs> he just wanted a pickaxe so bad. So um, Alicia discovers uh, Betty's body out there. The police are called, and Peter makes the brilliant decision that not only are they going to stay rehearsing for the rest of the night, they're going to change the entire deal because they're like, this is great publicity. We're going to make it all about this murder. Yeah. This, this insane slasher has escaped from a mental institution after murdering a bunch of people, has murdered our costume department woman, and now we are going to lock ourselves in the theater overnight. We're going to throw away the keys so nobody can get out. Because <laughs> what could possibly go wrong with this plan? After the, the cops do show up and they park a cop car outside of the theater just in case the murderer comes back because they don't catch him, of course. But now... They, I guess they just didn't check, I don't know, inside? <laughs> well, this place is basically a TARDIS. It has unknown scale. I don't think we ever get an actual establishing shot that shows the entire building. No, it, it's just kind of a big, gray, concrete building from the outside, as far as I could tell. And then it's just, it's more like a, a film stage on the inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, rather than the theater, in an actual theater, but no, they're in a an actual proper soundstage. They even say at the end that uh, the murders have been called the soundstage massacre by the papers. But already, yeah, those places... damn media. <laughs> Bring me pictures of Spider-Man. They said, um, but this place is subdivided up into so many workspaces and attics and catwalks and everything. You can never really get an idea of how big it is. No, but I think that's that's partially to the film's credit. The confusing layout of this soundstage just makes the the emotion that you're feeling of, I have no idea where we are. I have no idea where the killer is. It, 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 it helps to ramp up that tension as opposed to like, oh my God, I, I'm, ju I'm just so lost and I hate that I am so lost within this building. Absolutely. Um, so once you get past the idea of, yeah, it's stupid for them to stay there working all night and redo the play like this. It's stupid that they are locked in. So that's the thing, too. They have to get a key to leave the building. And the keys are lost. People hold on to the keys. People give keys to other people throughout. Um, you know, at one point, Peter gives the key to an actress and says, hide it so nobody can leave. That actress is promptly murdered. <laughs> um, that sort of thing. Once you get past that, then you basically have a locked room mystery, and it's very fun. 
It is. I I just I love these when when a slasher movie can give a very good reason why we can't call the cops, why we can't figure out this problem or leave. Like uh, the new Evil Dead movie, if you've seen that. No. Uh, the, so the reason that they don't leave at any point is because they're there doing. Um, Uh, a cold turkey from heroin for one of the characters. And they're like, we are not leaving until you are clean. And she's like, no, but there's demons and people and horrible things are happening. And they're like, you'll say anything to get out of this. We're not leaving. Right. And so in this film, again, it gives a really good reason why the people don't leave the building. It's because they're fucking idiots and they got rid of the key. (laughs) And um, how much do you want to go into the murders themselves? Because I think as we follow the plot, the actual plotting of each person getting murdered isn't so much important. The important thing is that they're getting winnowed down, and there are some very interesting murders in this. Oh, yeah. Like, like there's how people die. I, I'd rather save for people to watch, hopefully. Um, but again, it is a small crew of what is it? Uh, eight bot? Eight, sorry, eight people. Yes, <laughs> eight bodies too. Um, eight bodies and, waiting to happen. And wait, and when you take, uh, when you put aside uh, Peter's idea to keep them again all locked in, all working all night, um, they really are not that stupid about how to handle this we're like listen we're all going to stay together we're all going to stay in one room they basically trust each other they know who the killer is so they just go if we do this then we're not gonna die yeah it's it's a really good plan it's like these these characters are not making bad decisions as you're watching it at no point do you sit there and go oh what the only bad decision is let's throw away the key yeah. But beyond that, once once the murders start happening, they're like, no, we are together. We will be a united front. We cannot leave. Oh, her ankle is hurt. Okay, if we do have to split up, you guys stay together. We'll stay together. I am telling you exactly where we are going, what we are doing. Right? It's it's so and methodical. Yeah, but it just so happens the killer is really. Uh, good at improvisation and <laughs> outthinks them on several things. Yeah, things like just as soon as they think to call, he's disconnected the phone lines. Um, same thing, I think the only time that they agree to split up is when they realize where he's been getting his weapons to kill people. Yeah, so there's a, a carpentry shop because there has to be for making a stage production. How do you make the sets, right? And so he's just gone into the carpentry shop. Oh, look, a drill. Oh, look, a chainsaw. Look now at the all chainsaw, these. <laughs> the chainsaw gets me. The chainsaw's a little far-fetched. Are they no, cutting we, out trees? No, we keep chainsaws on set. Wait, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chainsaws are, are great for uh, aging things. <laughs> yeah, they age me right to the face. <laughs> <laughs> Look at these craggers deep cut around <laughs> my mouth. How do you think I got those? <laughs> okay, yeah, I can sort of see that in terms of big set pieces. Yeah, I work with 
miniatures. So when I'm aging stuff, I'm like adding watered down black paint. I didn't think in terms of big craggy stuff. No, so like in in an aging kit in the paint shop, we have uh, generally we'll have rasps, we'll have some like things for like uh, shaving off bits of wood, but then we also have flails, <laughs> which are like <laughs> no no joke, just like they're chains attached to a metal rod that you just smack the piece of scenery with to get it all dented in certain areas. They'll have um, like different kinds of hammers, different, like some people will have baseball bats literally with nails sticking out of them just to smack into things to get different grooves and dents and little bits and pieces pulled out. And so one of the things we have is also a chainsaw because you can take a chainsaw to like a really thick piece of wood and just go whole hog and it makes great splintery effects. And you know, generally it's, it's not used for nice pristine sets. It's used for like aging stuff. Mm-hmm. And every once in a while you just need a chainsaw. No yeah, you just need a chainsaw. Sorry, I just so, had a text come in on mute now. Okay, go, go. I'll, I'll vamp. Go. No, no, I'm back. I'm back. Just in oh, case the, okay. uh, my mic picked up the sound of my text coming through. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. I thought you were going to uh, do something else. Anyway. Um, I've done something so... interesting, Sam. <laughs> What's that? A buy one, get one, 50% off sale? That's not a sale, people. 50% off is a sale. What you just got is 25% off. <laughs> you were lied to. <laughs> And that's been consumer alert from Is It Camp. <laughs> I I got all of my sales uh, tips from the nanny. <laughs> if it's not fifty percent off, it's not a sale. Oh my god! I found out yesterday at my aunt's birthday party that her wedding dress was seventy five percent off, and I've never like related to somebody more in my life and been like. We share blood. <laughs> As it bloody well should be, right? Wedding yeah. dresses are such an incredibly expensive thing. Yeah. Um, so. Where are we in the plot? We were talking about the uh, the workshop. Oh. oh. Say too, at, at this point, the killer has uh, has donned the owl headdress. So, you know, there's mix-em-ups about, oh, there's a body here wearing the owl headdress. I guess I'd better just murder this person without oh, no. anything. It turns out it's Gary. Gary was underneath the whole, the, the owl mask. Because he only played... The gay man the, in the play. Yeah, the only gay in the play. Uh, only gay he, in the play. <laughs> He so he plays the killer on stage, but the killer, the actual killer, very quickly gets rid of him, dons the owl mask that he uses, and is now walking around in this very creepy owl mask. It, it, there's something about it that changes from when you initially see it in the play to when the killer is wearing it, that all of a sudden it does become menacing. Before it was a little hokey, and now it's like, oh no, hold on a second. And this thing is absolutely huge. Like, it's resting on his shoulders. It looks like something 
ex- except for the fact that it's incredibly creepy. It's like the size and scale of a Mickey Mouse costume you would see in the parks, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Like, there should be a rest of a costume to this, which is an owl costume. Yeah, and I don't... I'm a bit of a bit. The the eyes are sort of very dead, you know? It's just staring straight ahead. You never get the idea that he's... um, You never get the idea that he's about to move. He's a very still figure. Mm-hmm. The the only the only emoting that you ever get from the killer will be a close up of his eye underneath the owl's eye, like the cutout piece that he can see through. So you can see his eyes scanning around, looking for things, and you can occasionally see him get like angry. But it's much beyond like the paradise, actually. Yes, but beyond that, you don't get big body movements he'll just show up and murder someone and then that's it Mm -hmm. um so eventually he starts taking pieces of people and creating a sort of tableau on the stage did you get was there supposed to be something that we understood about this tableau no i from what i saw just looking at it i was like this is just his vision right as he's as he's killing these people like murder is his art and he is now creating this intricate tableau of all these body parts and dead people because oh the the one that really shocked you they go up to the attic <laughs> for some reason <laughs> i can't remember that, that feels like it gets really evil dead for a second yeah so oh they've decided to take matters into their own hands instead of cowering from him they're going to chase him down and murder him and you know, rightly so. Like, there's, there's set, there's, oh, no, at this point, there's six of them. And they're just like, no, there's six of us. Uh, and unfortunately, if some of us get injured, that, that's too bad. But we can overpower him. He's just one dude. We're going to stop him. So they chase him and they chase him up into the, the rigging and the scaffolding above the set and further up into an attic area, which is where they find uh, Gary and stab him a bunch and they go, ah, ha ha, we've killed him. They take off the mask and go, oh shit, we've killed the only gay in the play. And uh, the, the cool girl with the asymmetrical earrings, she's backing up and she's freaking out. And then from the floorboards, some arms come out, grab her ankles and yank her down into some kind of attic catacomb. <laughs> the basement of the attic, yes. The basement of the attic. And her boyfriend reaches down, grabs her arms to stop her from being pulled in. He pulls back and he pulls up only the top half of her body. She separates like she's a Lego person. (laughs) (laughs) And it's, this is very camp. This is over the top. There's a scene in, um, in, is it a touch of frost? Um, No. What's the one with um, John Hanna? Oh, a Touch of Cloth. There's a bit in A Touch of Cloth that has a very gory intestine scene that made me think of that. Like, it's this only feels like it could have been played for comedy. It's, and like you said before, it's got a very Evil Dead feel to it. The way the, the body 
comes out and it's got all of its intestines hanging out below it. And when they <laughs> cut to it being on top of him, like the top half of her, it's her again. And I mean, this, this movie has a lot of fun of instead of using like fake replicas of heads and body parts, we're just going to have the actors sit in specially designed props to cut off certain parts of their body. So, yeah, oh, there's it's, a lot it's, of like the head resting on the table. Yeah. And, oh, it's the top half of her body on a chair uh, on this sofa. Where's the other half of her body? It's inside the sofa, guys. Movie yeah. magic. <laughs> And it's it's just such a delightful piece to see that happen. They try to chase the killer into the attic basement. <laughs> uh, um, and it's at this point, and no, it is at this point that I think it, it find you finally clue into this idea that the music is diegetic. Because when we cut to outside of the attic basement, you can hear the music of the scene. But when you cut to inside of it, now it's muffled or muted. Mm-hmm. And you're like, oh, shit. They were rehearsing and nobody turned off the record player that was the music pumping through the speaker system in the soundstage. I, I love it. Again, I feel like this could so very easily be turned into an, an opera for the stage. I would love to see it. Uh, it's, it's just so much fun. Um, <laughs> and following this, so the boyfriend dives down into the attic basement, immediately gets killed uh, with a chainsaw. And at this point, again, another one of the moments where I just busted a gut laughing. Um, the killer has them in a corner with the chainsaw, and he's revving up, and he's lifting it up, and then he runs out of fuel. <laughs> But it's it's a very real bit that might happen. Like in, in other movies, in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you never see Leatherface stop, or at least I, I don't know. I don't pay hard attention to the films, but you don't see him like stop, open up the side, get his <laughs> little gas can. Go, 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 hold on a second. I'm going to eat your face soon, but go, 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 Cool. I'm all filled up. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Hold on. I, I, let me just prime it a bit. Dun, 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 I, I think I may have flooded this one. Let me try it again. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Let's go. So to actually have this killer, like, I'm going to murder you. Well, fuck. Absolutely. Um, so at this point, I think he's pretty much killed everyone except Alicia, right? Uh, how does he... Because he... Uh, no, he chases the director. and he, Yeah, he decapitates the director with an axe. Yeah, so he finally does manage to, to kill the director. But it's important to note that earlier, when they were going up to the rafters to get the killer, Alicia falls. She slips off of a ladder, falls, and knocks herself out on a platform. So she's been unconscious for the last 15 minutes of of the film up to this point. She wakes up. Yeah, she wakes up and she's just, she's, oh, what's happened? 
Where am I? Uh, where are all my friends? The music's still playing, but the sound stage is utterly silent aside from the music. Mm-hmm. And these sort of drapes coming down, they're not exactly flat, but they're like wafting pieces of fabric. So again, things are blocked off. You never really know where you are. What I really enjoy about the last 20 to 30 minutes of this film, because it's just Alicia at this point, most of the murders are done. It's just her. The movie becomes a silent film. I love this so much. And I think it's the thing. I was thinking about this earlier today, actually, about when a movie gets confident enough to just go silent. And I think it's some of my favorite movie-making ever, honestly. It understands that this woman is... She needs to survive. She needs to be absolutely silent. She knows what she has to do. She just needs to find that one key to open the door, to get outside to the cops, and she can be safe. That's it. She goes to an office. She goes through all of the drawers. She finds a ring of keys and finally goes out to basically the wide openest part of the sound stage where they have the stage set up again. Like this is the first time she's daring to go out in the open again. And this is where we see the tableau that Irving has set up on the stage of all of these dead bodies and parts of bodies. And he's sitting in the middle of it. It's not just that he's created a tableau and he's like, ah, oh, it's so pretty. I, I love what I've done. He, he's, <laughs> He's made himself part of it by sitting himself in the middle between all of these bodies and body parts that he's assembled. He's thrown a bunch of feathers around and uh, a cat that somehow keeps on making its way into the stage is just sitting on his lap with him and he's stroking this cat. And the loudest cat in the world. This cat keeps screaming. (laughs) oh wait until you hear my cat one day (laughs) so she tries all of these keys at the um at the door none of them fit she looks back over to the stage and it's then that she sees the key the one key and it's wedged between the floorboards of the stage right in front of the killer it's it's such it's it's such a beautifully tense moment of realization because the 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 director or whoever whoever was in charge made that key glint on the floor in amidst all of these corpses so it it catches your eye as well i feel like they had different size keys as well because especially in close-ups of the key in the door later at one shot she's running with the key and i feel like the key is like the size of a mug in that shot um Mm -hmm. i feel like they had like five different scales of keys yeah but say for this one it's going to be the largest thing in the frame Mm -hmm. it works all right The, the inconsistency of the key size is not part of what you you want to what you want to think about but rather it's just like okay good it has my focus and that's all that matters it's like the the ring from lord of the rings yes exactly um so she has to go under the stage and try to 
unwedge the key. Meanwhile, this snitch-ass cat keeps screaming. Um, and she can't get it. It's kind of stuck. So she has a big old nail. And she tries to wedge it free with that. Essentially, she finally gets it out. She has the key. She backs up. Too. She has a gun. She does have the gun. Yeah, she, she finds a gun in the uh, manager's office. So she backs out from under the stage. She's checked. Like, I feel like this girl has done everything right at this point. She has a gun. She has the key. She is checking behind herself. It is only because of the rules of cinema that we cut to a vantage point that she has not previously seen. And suddenly the murderer is there and he's choking her just as she gets out from uh, underneath the stage. Yeah, it's, I mean, that, it's such a perfect building up of tension. We're with her. We want her to have that key. We, she's got the gun. She's made all the good decisions. And he has to catch her. They have to confront each other. This actress, Barbara Cupisti, um, she has such a wonderful face for this kind of silent movie acting, too. She's got these huge, huge eyes. It kind of reminded me of, like, Margot Pitter or Mia Farrow. Um, mm-hmm. Just watching these eyes scanning the entire time. She's almost like a Cupid doll. Like, they seem too large for her face. Um, at this point, she takes the nail. It's like a, um, a point-and-click adventure game like she's picked up all of these <laughs> things <laughs> and now you she has the nail to the yeah so she tries to shoot him the gun doesn't shoot she grabs a nail and she stabs him through the eye hole of the mask it's great um then she gets away oh yes she gets to the door she's just about to make it but he's there on top of her again <laughs> And this is where the incredible fire hazard finally comes, uh, Chekhov's fire hazard. <laughs> so there's been like an, an oil drum with a fire going in it for the entire time. And I guess it's to create like, not actually up on the stage. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like, is, is it meant to be? No, I think they had an oil drum full of fire uh, on stage at one point in the earlier scene when they were doing it. Oh, and we never talked about the Marilyn Monroe playing a saxophone during that scene. (laughs) Because there's the Marilyn Monroe playing a saxophone. Yeah, if I hadn't guessed that this uh, movie was Italian by the sound design, I probably would have guessed it around that point where a woman has just been murdered on the street and sex solo, Marilyn on top of the grate. <laughs> yeah, doing the <laughs> Yes, so the, the barrel full of oil or whatever that, you know, homeless people should be warming their hands over was presumably part of the street scene ambiance earlier, but they've just kept <laughs> this oil drum full of fire going the entire time. Um, it's a miracle they didn't all die of carbon monoxide poisoning. <laughs> or, you know, maybe the fires would have went out at some point because nobody's constantly feeding them something. Who knows what's in it, but they've kept going. <laughs> 
So, yeah, she manages to dump it onto the guy. He immediately goes up, which is a lesson to never wear polyester pants. Um, it was the 80s. We didn't know better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he staggers about and finally collapses and, uh, and she escapes. So, this, this going back to film theory, you know one of the things that uh, Robin Wood talked about with the final girl? Yes. Okay. So the idea that Rob, Robin Wood put forth with the final girl is that the final girl become, uh, has to take up inherently male characteristics in order to defeat the evil. And one of those male characteristics is she kills him with a phallic object. Hey, Robin. What's setting a dude on fire? Is that phallic? <laughs> it's not, you fuck. <laughs> I don't like Robin Wood for a reason. So We're the only podcast that dares to call out Robin Wood. <laughs> yeah, take that, Robin Wood. Let's see you find a phallus in immolation. <laughs> yeah, and previously she attacks him with a fire extinguisher, too. So I feel like both of those are decidedly non-phallic weapons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Look at us going. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, stage fright. Let's buck those trends. <laughs> uh, so she escapes. It's pretty much a hard cut to her being taken away by the police. Um, then safely, she... not arrested. Safe. Yeah, yeah, safely. Um, being surrounded by reporters and stuff because... The theater scene in this community is clearly a hot one <laughs> because we have all these people begging to know the latest news about these uh, the soundstage massacre. Yeah, as um, they, as the papers have now dubbed it, which you know it's only been a couple hours, and the papers dubbing it the soundstage massacre has somehow caught on with the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, this is the pre-Twitter, but it's the equivalent of their trending topics, you know. They just grabbed onto the hashtag and then other people start tweeting what's uh, uh, Soundstage Massacre's trending for? And then it just collapses in upon itself. Thank you, uh, Slasher Twitter. <laughs> um, so she's at the police station or the hospital, something like that. She has a really great shirt on that, she does, that they've given her. It's this very, I again, Italian, like, seaside sort of look. It, it, it could just be the uh, mental hospital for the criminally insane that she's just gone back to. Apparently, being the closest <laughs> hospital <laughs> anybody can get to. Um, and she realizes that she has forgotten her watch, which was sort of the thing that started this whole firestorm off she not, she wanted to find her watch which is very expensive and very sentimental she realizes she left it in the sound stage she gets a taxi goes back solo to the sound stage and convinces willie again the only nice man to let her back in um there's something to be said series... about like Sorry, after a series of very good decisions, she decides to make a very bad decision. Absolutely. Willie, who absolutely loves this woman, he makes it very clear. Um, if he weren't Black, there would be some sort of love story here, but because he is an older Black man, he is kind of 
neutered in this way. Um, he says, okay, you know, I really shouldn't, but I'll let you back in because it's your watch. Um, and meanwhile, he's in there just a positive chatterbox telling her about everything the newspapers have reported about the soundstage massacre. She's clearly in shock still. Yeah. (laughs) Now's not the time. Like, (laughs) hey, Willie, send her on her way and then say, I'll find it for you uh, once the cops are done going through the crime scene because it's still an active crime scene. And one thing that he points out is that there were eight bodies. And she goes, wait a second. And she starts adding them all up in her head. Oh, and at the same time, Willie is saying, you know, that gun's incredibly easy to shoot. It practically shoots itself. You just forgot to take the safety off. If you'd taken the safety off, it would have blown his head off. Yes, if only you had taken the safety off. (laughs) Don't forget, eight bodies, safety off. Eight bodies and safety off. He basically, like, it, it, it might as well have been the, I remember someone saying it, eight bodies, bodies, bodies. <laughs> Safety off, 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 <laughs> Except he's actually there just repeating it over and over again. <laughs> uh, so she realizes that, of course, Irving Wallace is one of the bodies there and is not actually dead. Uh, Irving Wallace does this sort of ah from the bottom of the screen and Alicia goes oh no and then Willie just blows him away with yeah. the gun that has not been taken into evidence no like the cops haven't picked up this dead body they picked up every other dead body but not this one they didn't pick up the gun and they're, they clearly also don't have any cops waiting around this crime scene to tell people, hey, hold on, please don't go in there, active crime scene. Right? It's just, nah, we picked up all those dead bodies. What about the eighth, the ninth one? Meh. So the, uh, this gun, which really only 30 seconds before has been telling us is an absolute cannon and can blow somebody's head off. And he then tells Alicia that he got Irving Wallace right between the eyes. Alicia just walks off shell-shocked. Final shot. Irving Wallace looking right at the camera, still alive. The end. Oh, no! (laughs) So I think we know the answer to this. But Sam, is it camp? Yes, this movie's camp. It's about a stage production with a serial killer. And on top of it, it, it's at the end of the slasher cycle. So it was remixing and changing what it could about, about films. Like the, the film allows its characters to break so... It breaks a lot of the rules of the convention of the slasher genre. Right? The music is diegetic. Uh, the characters make good decisions except for two being let's throw away the key. Let's go back to the crime scene. Those are the two bad decisions. (laughs) Um, It's like the killer is just making art. The final girl makes great decisions. It's, I, I love it. It's camp. It's horror. It's a great time. 
And yeah, I would argue that this is in fact high camp, what Susan Sontag referred to when she was talking about the fact that like opera is camp, ballet is camp. I've, I've compared this to opera so many times, but I'm just going to keep on going. It's uh, all very high emotions to this score. This movie could have just as easily really have been a silent movie, which I think is one of the greatest compliments you can give a movie, honestly. Film is a visual medium. And if you manage to tell most of your story strictly through images, it shows that you're working at a much higher level than most people, I think. Like, everybody loves dialogue, and people talk about, oh, this film has great dialogue, and it's so much fun to repeat it. No, dialogue is the last aspect of storytelling in a movie. The rest should all be visuals, and this movie knocks it out of the park. Yeah, this is this is why I like wrestling, right? You don't need to hear the wrestlers talk to each other. They should a great wrestling match tells the story through their bodies, right? How they move, how they're moving with each other, who's the bad guy, who's the good guy. It shouldn't be conveyed in a single word. It should just be conveyed in what am I physically doing? And this movie does it, right? The the killer is menacing, but not through doing grand gestures it is just i'm standing perfectly still i've placed all these bodies around me and i'm sitting perfectly still that's that's a whole new level of stuff you you get her emotion of i am in terror and i must survive and she's not saying a word oh it's so good so Um, i i hope that you guys go out and and show this, see it, and show this to other people because I, this is a forgotten gem of horror cinema and slasher cinema. If you're squeamish about gore, um, the movie tells you very clearly when a kill is about to happen. You can just close your eyes. Um, but yeah, if you if you are not sure about whether you will like this because you don't really like horror, um, that's me, and I really love this. It's like it's Tom Stoppard making a horror movie. <laughs> uh, a slasher by Tom Stoppard. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining us today on our exploration of stage fright. Please subscribe on your podcaster of choice. Leave a star rating and review where you can, because it always helps us to find new people who may not know what their camp favorite is. Yes, and next week we will be attacking Josie and the Pussy Hats. The Pussy Cats. Oh, that would explain why you're not wearing any hats, that is. <laughs> I, I feel like this is what we've been building up to the entire time. Other than actual cats. <laughs> yes, that and cats. We've got to do cats for like a big anniversary piece. Oh, it's going to be like a fiftieth episode or something. It, it's it's <laughs> got to be that. But um, it, this this to me, this was my favorite comedy film of the early two thousands. It's such an inherently memeable script to it everything that the character every little nugget of dialogue that they have i know we just said dialogue should be the last thing but there's some galaxy brained level writing happening in in this film josie and the pussycats and it's just such a shame that it came out when it did 
um, and just got buried. People don't, people haven't seen this. People haven't watched this. And this is, this is a gift of comedy filmmaking. I feel like when this movie came out, it, people didn't get the joke. Um, I remember reading reviews that were just like, this movie is wall-to-wall product placement. Like, what a cheap sellout. Uh, you know, we have this existing IP and therefore we're making a movie out of it and we're going to suck yes. every dollar that we can without yes. getting that that's the point. Yes, that's the point. Yes. <laughs> you've, you've said it. <laughs> this movie is sneakily good to the point where it's kind it kind of feels like a miracle that it got made. I mean, you've got acting geniuses, Parker Posey and and Alan Cumming working in scenes with each other. Oh, and they're so good together. I really, really hope that this holds up. I've not watched this in a couple of years and it is a movie from 2001. So I'm, I'm nervous about some of the comedy coming back, but I'm very excited to rewatch it. It's, it's exciting. This is an exciting time for an exciting film. And the movie is finally getting a Blu-ray release. Blu-rays have been around for 10 years and <laughs> Josie and the Pussycats is finally getting a release. This may be one of the few Blu-rays I have to buy just because I, I, want, I want my money to speak for me and say, yes, Josie and the Pussycats is the best movie ever. Join the Navy. Join the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you can continue. If there's any movie that we cover that I want people to to watch. I think it's Josie and the Pussycats. Like, yeah, uh, Stage Fright is a great film, but Josie and the Pussycats is Josie and the Pussycats. Yes. Uh, you can continue the discussion on our Twitter before we continue the discussion next week. <laughs> <laughs> I am at Reese Indigo, R-H-Y-S, the Welsh way. And I am at Sour Citrus Lady. And you can follow the pod on at Is It Can't Pod. Until next week, wait an hour before swimming, watch out for snakes, and stay camp. Ta-ra! Bye! Not too camp. No, not the way you do it.